As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. Now you may hear that I am on the move this week. I am in Japan on my way to Hiroshima to record our special anniversary episode which you will hear in August. This episode however focuses in on the Korean War. Now you may well have seen that the new hit film Devotion is out starring Jonathan Majors and Top Gun's Glenn Powell. The film tells the inspirational story of the US Navy's most famous aviator duo, Lieutenant Tom Hudner and Ensign Jesse Brown, and the Marines they fought to defend. To help us explore their history and the story of remarkable bravery and heroism that defined their time in the service, I'm joined by the author of the book the film is based on, the fantastic Adam Makos. Now, Adam reveals his incredible research and the first-hand interviews with Korean War veterans that went into writing this fascinating history. Enjoy. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, James. Doing great. Well, congratulations on the book, Devotion, an epic story of heroism, friendship and sacrifice, and the new film of the book, starring none other than Jonathan Majors, Glenn Powell, Christina Jackson, Thomas Sadowski, and Joe Jonas. Tell us, Adam, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for this to come out? It must have been a project years in the making. Oh, I would say definitely an 11, James. (laughs) Having seen how difficult it is to go from book to film, I mean, it really is like winning the lottery. There are so many great stories out there yearning to be told and for yours to be chosen. It requires lightning to strike once, twice, three times. We got lucky with an incredible actor in Glenn Powell, who became one of the great breakout stars of Top Gun. But even a great actor is not enough to get your film across the finish line. In the case of Devotion, we had a great financier, Mr. Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. His daughters are the producers of the film. So we had the money, we had the star, we got Jonathan Majors, whose own fame blew up in a big way the last year. But you still couldn't get a movie made until you had a great director. And we got really lucky in this young man named J.D. Dillard, 
whose father was the second black Blue Angels pilot in the U.S. Navy. So a remarkable young man, filmmaker, and he goes to his agents and he says, I want to do an aviation project. And we just happen to have one. And so once you put those pieces together, the talent, the money, and the director, then you stand a chance. Until then, it's an uphill battle. And the passion as well, because if you've got that family link of the director to this period of history, then you can just see the passion rushing through it. Absolutely. You have to, to make a film like this, you have to care about this bygone era, 1950, and naval aviation. And, and this. You, you have to be a bit of a nerd to want to make this kind of movie. You have to be somebody who understands the culture and who, somebody who really wants to tell this story. A lot of Hollywood, you know, that's why we see these Marvel movies come out incessantly and and we see esoteric pieces that appeal only to them. And they usually go to the box office and they bomb and then they go make more of them. And and it, it's it's pretty sad because Hollywood, just in my opinion, churns out year after year of mediocre product. And so a film like this is rare and, you know, I give all credit due to people like JD who stepped forward and said, let's make something different. Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, because there's so many questions I want to ask you about the film itself, take us back to that period in 1950, Adam. Take us back to the forgotten war in Korea. What specific story does your book and film focus on? Well, the story tells about the friendship between two Navy fighter pilots, and they were men from different worlds in 1950. Tom Hudner was from the country club scene of New England. He was born into great wealth and had his life laid out in front of him. The other side of the coin is Jesse Brown. He was a black American from a sharecropper's field. He literally grew up dirt poor. And so that sharecropping is, you know, of course, farming a field that somebody else owns. So it's essentially an extension of slavery because you would you would work all day and all week. And at the end of the day, you never make more than enough to put food on the table, never enough to get ahead. And so this young man was growing up barefoot, literally planting watermelons and, and working these fields. And he had this crazy dream of being a Navy fighter pilot. And he became the first black carrier pilot, the first black fighter pilot. He broke through where no other black man had gone. The army had allowed the Tuskegee Airmen a chance and they had performed wonderfully, as we know, in World War II. The Navy had been a tougher nut to crack. And it wasn't until Jesse came along that it, that it happened. But these men were friends at first in the peacetime era. You know, the world is, the rumblings were happening it's 1950. We know the war is going to break out somewhere, that clash between communism and democracy, but they didn't know where. And so they're forming their friendship. And then all of a sudden, June 1950, the call comes, you're going to war. And that's when they really, you know, it, it, the definition of wingmen was really defined when they went into combat together. Well, I've got to take you back ever so slightly because I need to know why Jesse Brown wanted to fly. What was it that inspired him? to go and undertake this rigorous training regime to go and fight for the U.S. Navy. One of his closest encounters with aircraft was when he was working in the field and there was the landowner. He had a son who was in aviation training for the military and he was at a nearby base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And so Jesse's working the fields of a small town called Lux, Mississippi. And so Jesse's out there in the fields and this young white kid would come with his, 
it was at that time a, a single wing trainer. I think it was a BT-13. And he would buzz the black sharecroppers because, you know, he would get a kick out of seeing them run for their lives. He would come down the fields, prop almost hitting the dirt, and he would scatter these young people. And Jesse eventually stopped running because Jesse knew that even if this guy hit him at five feet above the earth, he was going to crash himself. And Jesse knew that would not happen. So Jesse's first encounter with aircraft was being terrorized by them. But eventually he came to be enamored with them. And he would stand there as this young man came blazing down the fields and the man would pull up at the last second and fly away. And all the other sharecroppers would be hiding beneath the biggest tree and they'd be shouting for Jesse to join them. And when they saw him emerge unscathed, they would say he was crazy, he was stupid, he was a fool. You know, and Jesse would say, someday I'm going to fly a plane like that. And they would all say, you're full of it. But Jesse's dream had literally been planted. That has to be one of the most incredible inspiration stories I've ever heard, Adam. It's, it's, it's usually, oh, I heard about the Wright brothers or Curtis or all the other things that happened during this period in the early days of, of aviation. Or I, I guess once we get to the 1950s, we'd seen what the Tuskegee Airmen had been able to do or the, the great stories of heroism coming out of the Second World War. But this is a, a story of terror that has made Jesse want to take flight himself. What's the next step there? Do you just head down? down to the recruitment office and say, hey, I'd like to be a pilot, please. If only in those days. Um, Jesse's growing up essentially in the World War II era, and so he's watching it all happen from the sidelines. He's too young to fight. But he would collect the magazines, the aviation magazines, and that's where he got this idea about carrier aviation. I mean, imagine living in a shack with essentially one room, not even a bathroom, and when it would rain, the water would pour in from the corrugated iron ceiling. And the, the kids, Jesse and his brothers, would run around with mason jars and they would put it underneath the dripping water to try to collect it. Jesse would run to save his aviation magazines first. It's an absolutely tragic tale, but it's also inspirational. He had this idea of being a carrier pilot. And so he probably got it from the magazines he read. And his way of getting there was he attended the Ohio State University. He was able to get in because uh, he was inspired by Jesse Owens, the great American athlete. And that's where Jesse Owens went. And so Jesse Brown thought, okay, they're going to be open to a person like me. And sure enough, they were. He got into the ROTC and an amazing thing happened there. Well, he was at school trying to get a degree and then hoping he could become a pilot. He saw the recruiting poster there that said, Leave the school, basically, after two years. That's all you need. You don't have to go for. Leave school and come join us. And Jesse thanked God that he saw that poster and he went to Ohio State because that poster would have never appeared at an all-black college had he gone to a school in the South. Instead, they put that poster up there, not expecting that some young black man would be audacious enough to actually apply. But he did. And people... One of the ways Jesse diffused racism and broke through where nobody else had, I believe it was partially because he never forced himself on anybody. So he was quiet, introverted, but he wanted, he was so earnest in his desire to want to fly and fight for the United States of America. He didn't want to become the first black airline pilot. That was not his goal. He wanted to fight for this country and defend this country, just as his uncles had. One was a Buffalo soldier. You know, he had a military lineage in his family. Some of them had fought in World War I. 
and he wanted to do the same. And so you might have had these detractors who, who saw him trying to come through. And then they said, wait a second, this guy really wants to fight for this country. This guy is patriotic in spite of a country that doesn't love him back. Maybe we need to give him a chance. And that's how he made it. So he signs up to defend a nation that wouldn't even serve him in a bar. What was life like for him during those early days in the U.S. Navy? Was there segregation in the U.S. Navy? What was it like? Well, by 1947, segregation was officially illegal, but a lot of units had not integrated. It wasn't actually until the Korean War, and and I, I was very surprised to learn this, the first days of the Korean War really brought about the integration of the military. Not even Truman's executive order that that ordered it, because a lot of generals and admirals said, "Okay, that's nice you're saying that, but practically we're not going to do that. It was the chaos of the Korean War when it broke out the first couple months when the American forces in the peninsula were about to be driven into the sea by the North Koreans. Suddenly, black units stepped forward and they were performing as well, if not better than the white units next to them. And they were holding off these hordes of North Korean troops. And at that point, in a desperate hour, the brass and everybody had to say, wait a second, maybe we need to rethink this thing. So it was actually in the Korean War that integration was truly proven. But to go back, Jesse going through flight training, you know, he encountered instructors who wanted to wash him out. But he also encountered instructors who were farm boys from Nebraska. He was a farm boy from Mississippi. They saw that they all came from humble origins. And he had guys who wanted to fight for him just as much as guys who wanted to tear him down. And they balanced each other out. There's an amazing story from flight training about how when Christmas came around, some of his fellow students were piling into a car to drive west. I think they were actually going out out to Arizona and California. And they saw Jesse waiting at the bus stop. And this one pilot, Sam Clausell, said, we stopped our car, we got out, and we made him get in with us. He insisted on taking the bus, but we knew he'd be sitting in the back of that bus. We made him get in with us. We drove him to his hometown in Mississippi on the way. We went up and his mother invited us all in. And at five o'clock in the morning, she made us breakfast. And there's a bunch of Naval Aviation cadets sitting around the table, Jesse Brown and his family, in this very humble sharecropper shack. I mean, what a contrast that must have been. So for every bad apple, there were a few good ones. So at this point, the Navy is becoming a bit of a a melting pot, which is a progressive stance as we move forward through the 1950s. And of course, as the Korean War, as you say, goes on, and as charge is handed over from MacArthur to Ridgeway, it starts to open up even more. In fact, Ridgeway was one of those pioneers of removing the barriers between races within the US military more broadly. But take us to Tom Hudner. Now, his upbringing, his history is a massive just juxtaposition, a contrast to that of Jess's. What's Tom's backstory? Tom's backstory is that he grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, which at the time was a wealthy place. It had manufacturing. There was a lot of garment manufacturing up there, the old textile mills. And his father and his grandfather before him had founded a grocery store chain, Hudner's Markets. And I think there were seven or eight of them, which back then was was a true franchise. I mean, that was a big deal. And they expected him to go to Harvard, like his forebearers, and to inherit the family business because Tom was the eldest of three sons. And he had this crazy idea in prep school that he was going to sign up to serve our country at the Naval Academy. Uh, World War II was raging and one of his classmates had gone before him, a guy he used to play football with. 
His name was George Herbert Walker Bush, future president of the United States. And George Bush was on the same intramural team as Tom. And so they would play football. And Tom's coach was George's older brother, Prescott. And so he was rubbing shoulders with interesting people at the Andover Prep School. And he saw George go off to become a naval aviator. And George did become the youngest naval aviator at the time. And Tom said, I want to do the same thing. So he applied. He got into the academy. But the war ended, as they say, just a few months too soon for him to see combat. So he kind of missed what he saw as an opportunity. But I mean, it's really remarkable when you think about it. I mean, he could have had the, the New England dream, you know, the beautiful wife, the fancy car, the golf courses, you know, at every turn. And instead, he, he wanted the same thing Jesse did. And I think that's what eventually brought these two men together and made them so close. They both wanted the same thing, to be professionals, to be naval aviators, and to do something for their country. I mean, it was a bond of selflessness, really. And so do they meet during basic training or a little bit later in the process? When does that bond start to forge? They actually met in their fighter squadron. So late 1949, early 1950, Tom reported to the squadron. And at first it was, there were questions, you know, are you going to be able to fly with a black man? Tom had gone to the academy, and the academy was in what they would consider rebel country. Annapolis, Maryland, you know, this is uh, during the Civil War, you know, the, you know, a lot of people from the academies would, you know, some of them would go to the South and fight. And so there was this question of, you know, you're coming from an institution that had not exactly been that welcoming to, to people of color. Are you going to be that way? And Tom said, you know, I, I had a black friend in high school, you know, what's the problem? And, and it was true. And, and that's how simply he saw it. And so these guys became um, squadron mates. In the movie, they're a little more uh, dynamic and a little more aggressive and they're a little more at each other's throats. In real life, they were, you know, the, you can only be so dangerous of a Navy pilot before you get yourself killed. And anybody who's ever flown formation knows what an incredible bond of trust it is to have either a jet or a prop-driven aircraft off your wing. You're in the air, suspended in animation, you might say, with a machine that can end your life in about three to five seconds. One wrong turn, one sneeze, one jerk of the controls, mid-air collision, you're both dead. And so I think people forget that. It's not like driving on the highway where a car is next to you and you're looking at each other and you're looking ahead and you're looking at each other. Death can come so quickly in the air that you really have to trust the person you're with. And I think the good thing about the Navy was they didn't let anybody wear those wings. They didn't let anybody into a squadron or they didn't let them remain in a squadron long if they didn't have the right stuff. So Tom and Jesse kind of hit it off pretty smoothly. Their one encounter at the beginning was when they first met, Tom remembered distinctly that he stuck out his hand to Jesse, said, I'm Tom Hudner, nice to meet you. And Jesse kind of looked down and stared at it for a minute. And finally he shook Tom's hand. Tom would later learn that that was because Jesse had done that many times in flight training throughout his life, and the other person would keep their hand at their side. They weren't even going to touch the skin of somebody from a different race. And so he was afraid to shake hands with people. And that's a pretty sad thing about 1949, 1950 America. But when he met Tom Hudner after they flew together that first time, those things were concerns of the past. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. 
I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies. And they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity. And in one of these sites called Quicoco actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, let's talk about that experience of flying during this period, because you mentioned, you know, there's no greater feeling than having a kind of prop-driven plane or a jet plane off your wing. These guys were in Vor F4 U Corsairs. Now, when you look at the Corsair, it's almost a bit of a, a relic from a bygone era by the time we get to the Korean War, because it is a propeller-driven engine. So it's a Pratt & Whitney engine that's inside it, but it's flying during the rising period, the heyday of the jet fighters. You know, this is going up in the air, in airspace, that's got MiGs flying in it. What did they think about this during this period? Did they love the plane? Did they think it was a bit old-fashioned? What were their thoughts? I mean, it's a beautiful plane. I was actually down in Connecticut over the summer at the Connecticut Air and Space Museum, and they have the Corsair that's used in the film, that they use the cockpit for. So I've been there, I've seen the plane, I've gone up in it, not up literally, but up <laughs> to, to be in the cockpit. It's a fantastic aircraft, but was it a bit too old? Was its heyday long gone? James, a lot of times these young men were just so cocky. They were excited to be in these machines. 
And I don't think anybody had really seen the MiG up close at that point to know what they were up against. Originally, these guys were flying Bearcats, which is just a hot rod. It was designed, the F-8F was designed to intercept kamikazes. So it had, you know, basically from the ground to the altitude, it held the record. It was meant to take off from a carrier and just zip to the heavens and, and stop the Japanese from hitting our ships. So they were flying this hot rod, they were loving it, and then they get the Corsair. So it's actually a little bit of a step back for them. They got the Corsair because the squadron was essentially transitioning to a new role, which was ground support. And I think for all the young fighter pilots, you know, they wanted to be kind of battling a MiG. Okay, let's let's see what happens. You know, I want to get some kills on the side of my plane. Now they're suddenly told, okay, you're going to be using these HVAR rockets and you're going to be going after um, tanks and T-34s probably. And they were thinking the battle would be fought in Austria at the time. You know, the Fulda Gap, places like that, or in Poland. So nobody really had their eyes on the Far East at this point. They're picturing attacking Josef Stalin tanks, IS-2s, that kind of stuff. Then when they actually go to Korea, they meet the MiG for the first time. And it actually, you know, the, the movie Devotion has the MiGs come in, or at least one MiG, and there is this pretty cool aerial battle. It actually happened. And it actually happened on the day we see it, where they're attacking the bridges at Sunuju. The MiGs were not officially in the war. North Koreans were not really fielding them. They were, they were Russian, at some points Chinese pilots, but at first they were Russian pilots. You know, the Russians, I think, do not get enough discredit for their role in the Korean War. They actually fueled this war. They created the war that would eventually take 33,000 American lives. You know, they were looking for a fight. As anybody who studied the Cold War knows, they were provoking NATO at every turn. And in Korea, what they actually did, they, they jumped in, they grabbed as much of Korea as they could at the end of the war. They were already positioning for the future wars. And they actually drew up the battle plans for the invasion of South Korea. They actually trained, they had, you know, I can't remember how many hundred Soviet advisors, maybe even a thousand, who were training the North Korean army. They gave them their tanks, their T-34s and their IL-2 Sturmovics, and they gave them their weapons. And they actually brought North Korean officers to Moscow, and they were having meetings with them. The war kicked off when Stalin gave the approval to attack the South. And so it was, it was this ugly proxy war and not enough blame is laid on the feet of Russia because, you know, they played their usual game, which is, oh, we're not involved. It's not our war. They actually pulled their advisors out of North Korea right before the war began, just so, you know, no guy with red hair or blonde hair named Alexei would ever get captured. But, you know, the whole war, they were sending their jets in and they were doing everything they could to kill Americans on the peninsula and UN troops. And so, um, you know, they really started this war that our guys were sent to fight in. And it's kind of remarkable to think, isn't it, Adam? When we look back to that period, that was the last time you had, I guess you could call it peer-on-peer air power conflict. It's certainly the last time, I think it was 1953, that the last US soldier was killed by hostile enemy air power. And, you know, if we thought about maybe 10 years ago, that would seem so alien to us that US and allied troops on the ground would not have command of the air. They would face a threat from above. That's not something that we faced in Afghanistan or Iraq or any of the wars in between, really, and not since the end of the Cold War in any way, shape or form. Yet today, that story feels so much more familiar because as we look to the European continent, we see that once again, you have a potent 
enemy hostile air power threat, although nowadays it's with drones, that is posing a threat to the cities and the troops of our allies. And I think that makes that your book and the film ever more relevant. But like you say, when we come down to Jesse and Tom, they have more of a ground support role. So tell us what that involves. They are actually, um, the Navy is meant for supporting the Marines. So so you really don't have that, you know, Navy fighter supporting an Army Green Beret team on the ground. That does That wasn't happening at the time. So they were very much service specific. And they flew off of a carrier, the USS Leyte, They originally were in the Mediterranean, enjoying the sun and a cruise to basically deter Soviet aggression. Because, you know, everybody thought the Soviets were going to try to grab parts of the Mediterranean. And so that's where the Leyte was when the war broke out. But our guys were attached to eventually the 1st Marine Division. And the 1st Marine Division, so when the war breaks out, the Leyte gets the call. You know, you have to steam to Korea. And so... They they stopped home in Norfolk for, for about a two-week period. They got to say goodbye to their loved ones. And then they sailed through the Panama Canal and to the west coast of America, where Jesse had this incredible last night in America where he went to a bar in San Diego and the bartender wouldn't serve him. They'd serve everybody else. And rather than tear the place up, his fellow pilots just said, let's get the heck out of here. It must have been so frustrating for them. But Jesse had been through all this. So that was his last night in America. The Leyte sails off to the Korean War. And uh, by that point, MacArthur had made that daring assault at Incheon. And by the time our guys really get into battle, the Americans are kind of back on their feet and swinging. And, and we're starting to drive up both of the coasts. And it looks like this thing is going to be over by Christmas. You know, the North Koreans were literally being driven off the peninsula thanks to the quick mobilization and the quick deployment of these forces. So Tom and Jesse go into the battle flying ground support missions. They're hitting rail yards and bridges, basically trying to hamper the North Korean retreat. But again, it looks like they're going to be home for Christmas, and the North Koreans are retreating toward the Yalu River, which is a border between North Korea and China. And MacArthur is headstrong and, and he thinks we're going to just end this thing. And he wants to keep going into China. I mean, who, who knows what he, he would have done if he had the chance. But then the whole war changed in November 1950. The rumblings were in October. There were these signs from the Chinese that things were about to get pretty dicey. And they, they very much did so. Well, it's here, I guess, we start to move towards one of the, well, the climactic part of your book and the film, which is the events that take place around the Chosin Reservoir. Tell us, how were Tom and Jesse involved in this pivotal part of the war? So the Chosin Reservoir is a battle that's up there with Valley Forge and up there, well, Valley Forge wasn't a battle, but it was a survival battle. The Continental Army fought in in the snow. It's up there with the Battle of the Bulge. It's a battle where you never thought you would see U.S. Marines who were designed for island storming, fighting in temperatures that would go down at night. Sometimes they were recorded at negative 30 degrees. A lot of the battle hovered around, you know, negative 10, zero. It wasn't always that cold, but U.S. Marines were fighting in the snow at a place called the Chosin Reservoir, far northern North Korea. Thank God that the Marine generals had seen the threat looming and they had built lots of stockpiles of ammunition and, and supplies as they moved toward the Yalu. You know, the generals in, in, in Korea thought that war was going to be over so certainly that they said, okay, keep charging, go, go, go. 
and the Chinese were laying in wait. They had brought 200,000 troops into the country under cover of darkness, and they were hiding out in the craziest places, under bridges, in forests, in mines. They were basically a surreptitious army laying this big trap, one on the west coast of Korea, one up near the Chosen Reservoir and the, the northeastern side. And our forces just stumbled right into it. And at the Chosen Reservoir, these Marine divisions suddenly found themselves, this Marine division found itself surrounded by roughly 100,000 Chinese troops. So between the Army and the Marines, you had more than 20,000 U.S. troops, but it was still, you know, it, it, the, the odds were not so good. And, and entire Army regiments were wiped out. In these early battles, I mean, it was Custer's last stand all over the reservoir, individual hills where the Marines were holding, you know, 200 Marines and a company were holding against 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 Chinese. East of the reservoir, the army units were getting overrun and wiped out. The men were limping across the ice to escape. It was one of the most valiant stands of the U.S. Marine Corps. They were outnumbered, but one advantage held was the M1 Garand rifle. We had a superior weapon that negated the Chinese advantage during daylight. We also had the Corsair fighters. And so you had Marine units flying from land. And then you had these two carriers parked off the east coast of Korea. And they were flying in. And that's what Tom and Jesse were doing. They were coming in. And there are just stories of these Corsairs finding Chinese in the open. And they were dropping napalm and using rockets. And one pilot told me, and I'll never be able to substantiate it, but he said we were trying to hit them with our propellers. You know, they were going that low. And so it was a kind of fighting that, you know, he was a Marine pilot. And so it very well might have been possible because they knew their brother Marines were in danger of being wiped out. Back home, the American newspapers were calling the 1st Marine Division the Lost Legion. So, I mean, it has those echoes of the Tudorburg Forest in Germany. And people were preparing for the loss of men like Bataan and Corregidor. You know, they were preparing for something horrific. But the pilots were the difference. And so during daylight, the Chinese had to lie low. And when they did try to come out, when they did try to mount a sortie, the Corsairs and the Sky Raiders just tore into them. I've seen kill counts where VF-32, our squadron, would say during the sortie, we report 300 enemy KIA. You know, by the time it was over, I'd have to go back to reports, but they, they were reporting thousands of enemy killed by this one fighter squadron. So it was a serious, serious impact. And as the Marines were trying to consolidate their forces in the army, trying to trying to draw themselves into the nucleus of this base, Hagaruri, which was at the foot of the reservoir, the southern tip, they were trying to bring everybody back in so we could fight our way to the sea. That's where the Corsairs were so wonderful because they would patrol the routes and they would hit the ridges and the hills. So it was really the advent of true close air support. I mean, I know in the World War II, we had P-47 pilots attack, attached to tank units, and they'd be using their radios and, and talking to the guys in the air. It was also done in places like Peleliu, Okinawa. But I mean, it was really perfected in Korea, where you had actual forward air controllers attached to these Marine units. And they were, they were Marine or Navy pilots trained for this role. And so they would say, thank God for error, because they were the angels on their shoulders, shepherding them back to the base and then helping them fight their way to the sea. 
Absolutely. This is classic combined arms. It's a point where it starts to get perfected, you could say. But you know, this doesn't mean that there isn't substantial risk for the Corsair pilots like Tom and Jesse. You know, you mentioned the weather. I, I dread to think what it was like trying to take off and land from a carrier as it's constantly being recovered by ice and snow and having to be cleared and it's slippery as hell. And then you end up going out over the coast. You have to engage in these low fights against hundreds, if not thousands, of troops. You're being fired at left, right, and centre. Do we know how many Corsairs were shot down during this period? You know, James, the amazing thing is the numbers were pretty small. You're talking fewer than a dozen. So the Leyte itself lost three pilots in the Korean cruise, and they all occurred about the same time period. Uh, the Philippine Sea, I'd have to look at their records, but um, they were not taking substantial losses because the Chinese made a mistake. And that is when they brought all those hundreds of thousands of troops in under cover of darkness, they didn't bring anti-aircraft. It was just not portable enough. And so they didn't bring their AA guns or their trucks or Jeeps. They didn't have that. It was a foot soldier based army. And so their AA was essentially 500 guys hiding in a small grove of trees, aiming their Mosin Nagants skyward. And that was where you were you were getting pilots knocked down. When 500 guys shoot at your plane at once, all it takes is one bullet. But you're so right about the harrowing carrier landings. There was, I want to say, a night or two before this ultimate moment in our book, early December 1950, where the pilots were coming back to the carrier. They were flying during daylight, but the seas were so stormy and it was so, the snow was coming down that even these veteran pilots most of them had to wave off several times before they could get their Corsair on the deck. And one of the young ones landed on his first try. And that night he was the hero. You know, he was the toast of the, of the, the wardroom because he had landed on the, on the first try. I mean, imagine that being in a pitching frigid sea on a carrier deck that had snow on it that morning when you woke up and you're trying to put it down, darkness is coming. And you know, if you land in that water, you're going to last a minute, two minutes at most. And are they going to send the helicopter to you in time? Probably not. And you're trying to land the Corsair, this aircraft with this really long snout to it. Corsair was terrible for carrier landings because it, it blocked the forward visibility. It's not like an F-18 where the pilot is perched up there and he has kind of the, the, the nose cone in front of him, but a really nice view forward. Corsair was a nightmare. You had to come in with one wing dipped down. You had to make a curving approach all the while you're descending. And the pilot is out of the corner of his windscreen looking at the little LSO, the man on the corner of the deck with the two paddles made of fabric covered in brightly colored strips of pink or yellow. And he's there waving to tell you if you're too high or too low. There isn't even radio communications. And so you're trying to land almost blind on a snowy carrier deck as night comes over the Korean Sea. I mean, give me a break. These guys were the best aviators that ever walked the planet. I mean, it's hard to disagree. And the bravery, I think, comes across in your book and in the film as well. And there's so much that we could talk about, but of course we want to leave some things for our listeners to find out about in the film and in the book itself. We don't want to be putting too many spoilers out there before the film comes out. But needless to say, Tom and Jesse are are deeply involved in a, in a rescue mission where one of them is shot down behind enemy lines. 
and I'll leave the rest for our listeners to find out themselves. But with that in mind, Adam, perhaps you could tell us, are there things that are left out of the film that you wish were kept in, or things that are left out that we should know about? Mm. I had the good fortune of working on the film quite a bit from the beginning, because I had the book rights, and this young actor, Glenn Powell, came to me. He wasn't the actor from Top Gun at the time. And he said, I want to play Tom Hudner. I'd read the book. My father read the book. My uncle, we were on a fishing trip. We all discussed it. I want this more than anything in the world. And I said to him, all right, well, if you really want it, then would you meet the real Tom Hudner? He's 92. He's alive. And if Glenn said, oh, yeah, next month or next summer, it would have been over at that point. No way. He said, when and where? And I said, well, when are you free? He said, next weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend. I'm, I get a break from my shooting. Next thing you know, we're at Tom Hudner's kitchen table having waffles. That's how this thing came about because he showed the determination and the commitment to the role. So I had the good fortune of working with him and working a little bit on the script. I got to make some historical notes to bring it closer to the book. The thing that's uh, left out, and I totally understand why, it's a lot of the ground story, the Marines. In the book, I felt it was important to follow some of these Marines into battle to see who Jesse and Tom were flying to defend. Because to understand their sacrifices and the risks the pilots took, you almost had to see who they're fighting for. And so in the book, it has some really incredible combat stories of close combat with Chinese troops, fighting in frozen creek beds in the snow, hand-to-hand combat, throwing guys over your shoulder, fighting them with K-bar knives. I mean, there's some, I was able to build something, some of the most harrowing hand-to-hand combat and close quarters combat into the story, all true from Marines I knew like Ed Codera and Red Parkinson, great guys. And when I read the script, I said, ah, darn, they're not going to be in this because those two hours of screen time just got eaten up by the pilot story. And so I think the thing I'd like to see someday is the Chosen Reservoir. This will be the introduction of this battle to 99% of the world because most people have never heard of the Chosen Reservoir. And when they see it, hopefully it'll plant that seed in someone's mind that this deserves a movie of its own. But everything else in the book made the leap. There's even Elizabeth Taylor in this movie, which is really cool. Then people are going to see it. And they're going to say, wait, did the screenwriters just get bored that they had to throw in Elizabeth Taylor on the beach in Cannes and the pilots suddenly strike up a friendship with her? Well, it's true. It really happened. And not only that, but there's a rumor that Elizabeth Taylor was actually dating one of the pilots after her marriage was on the rocks and she had an interest in one. Maybe let's just say they were friends. But when the USS Leyte was coming back from Korea, they got a cable from Elizabeth Taylor saying she'd love to be at the pier to greet the boys when they come home. Coincidence? The captain of the ship, Captain Thomas Sisson, had lost men on the Korean cruise. And he said, I don't think it's the right atmosphere. He said, when we disembark this ship, I don't think we need the boys hooting and hollering and and clamoring over Elizabeth Taylor. We need to remember we've left shipmates behind. And to his credit, they honored those men. So the story is very faithful. It was filmed with real aircraft, four real Corsairs, two real Bearcats, a real Sky Raider, a real MiG-15. And you're going to see scenes in this where, you know, you see a Corsair peel off from formation and dive from the heavens. And you almost are conditioned to think it's CGI. But the amazing thing is they had a new camera for this, a super high resolution IMAX quality camera that could fit in your in a satchel. It was a new red Komodo camera. And they were able to put this camera on the Corsair in places they never put cameras before. Not even Top Gun had this technology. So you had the same aerial film crew from Top Gun 
with better cameras. And so you see, you're gonna see camera angles that just look fake and they're real. And they're filming this thing with Corsairs flying five feet above a river. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a little CGI plane they dropped in. No, it's a real thing because they had divers in rescue boats watching these pilots come down the river and pull up in front of a bridge in Washington state. The stunts are real. The pilots are friends of mine. And these guys had done flying for Pearl Harbor and Catch-22. They were the best in the business. And so Devotion is both a thrill ride. You're going to get the, that, that grip your seat in the theater kind of feeling during some of the aviation sequences. And it's also just jammed with heart and soul because it's a true story and true stories hit harder. Anybody who loves history knows we are trying to learn from great people who came before us. You don't learn anything from Spider-Man or Captain Marvel or whatever nonsense they're going to cook up next. You know, just different colors of spandex at this point. You learn and you better your own life and you appreciate your own life more and you enrich your life by studying great people who came before you and the sacrifices that came with that. That's why the military is so sacred to me and this story is so important. America shouldn't have a forgotten war. That's what they call Korea. But the really cool thing about this movie is once it comes out, which is in just you know a short period of time, is Korea going to be a forgotten war anymore? Or have we righted a wrong that has existed for 70 years? Because there has not been a Korean War movie in a long, long time. Well, it's certainly something we share the passion for here on the podcast, Adam. We had a, a special month dedicated to the Korean War earlier this year, so we could only welcome more attempts to make sure that we can stop calling the Korean War the Forgotten War. Adam, thank you so much for your time. I'm excited. It's exhilarating. I can't wait to see these stunts, but you know what? I, I think I'm just most thankful at the fact that you were able to be on site during filming to make those tweaks and changes as necessary, because it's always great when the historian is involved involved in making the film as accurate as possible. So all that's left to do, Adam, is tell us, when is the film out? Where can we see it? And where can we buy the book? Mm. James, the film is out November 23rd in America. And I'm told it's coming to countries like Norway and, and Denmark in December. We're waiting still for the UK. We're waiting for Poland. We're waiting for Germany and France. I believe what they're going to do is measure the success of the film in the U.S. and then determine how broad to make it. So it's coming to Europe. It's just a matter of when. The book Devotion, it's something I'm really proud of. You can get it actually at ValorStudios.com. It's my family business. It's what pays the bills, keeps the lights on so I can go write these books. You know, we all have to have a couple jobs. And we have something really cool, and that is we have books that were signed by Captain Tom Hudner back in 2015. It was just a stroke of luck. Tom and I signed all these books for this one event and the event didn't pan out and I'm stuck with them. Ah, what am I gonna do? Well, seven years later, I'm pretty thankful we have them, but somebody can still add that to their collection. So valorstudios.com, get the signed book by Captain Tom Hudner because that thing is gonna be worth a lot someday. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Take care, James, this was fun. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Sports. 
spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.